And we've eventually grown now to where we're at like $2 million a year worth of equipment and network services that we actually donate back to the open source community. Um, we've got a formal program through CNCF for any CNCF projects that want need that type of assistance. There's, a, there's an issue, you can file an issue. Welcome to the Open at Intel podcast, where we're all about open source, from software to security to innovation and beyond. I'm your host, Katherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist at Intel, bringing you leading edge, free ranging conversations from some of the best minds in the open source community. Let's get into it. I spoke with Finn Aldrich, a developer advocate at Equinix, about everything from how networks actually function to the intricacies of corporate open source contributions, especially from the perspective of a hardware company. I think you'll enjoy nerding out with us. Finn, thank you so much for joining me today yeah. and fitting us into your schedule. I know things can be really hectic when you're at an event, especially a very a lively event is <laughs> like all things open where there are a lot of people, a lot going on, a lot of people you want to talk to. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, of course. Glad the timing lined up that well, I, could, I could fit in here. And I feel especially, um, I feel very special because you have two talks at the conference. So first, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. And, yeah. and, and I'd love for you to give us kind of like the Cliff Notes spoilerly, spoilery intro to your talks. Yeah, of course. So I'm Fen. I am a developer advocate with Equinix. I've been doing kind of the developer advocate thing for a little while. Was at uh, Elastic before in, uh, in Red Hat for a little bit. And honestly, I, I kind of tend to say I do more like Ops rel than DevRel, like because usually my target folks are like the systems uh, okay. engineers, sure, DevOps sure. folks are like that's who I love to talk to, and like I always end up doing some sort of infrastructure or something. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm with Equinix now. So we gave a talk yesterday uh, with a coworker of mine who runs our open source partner program, pretty much about how Equinix has given back to open source communities without being able to contribute code necessarily and okay. like code against projects. So we dove into our partnership program because Equinix Metal is where we came from, which does a lot of bare metal provisioning through API, you know, very cloud-like, but bare metal in uh, robust Equinix data centers. So it's got like some network advantages. Uh, so we actually end up helping a lot of these open source projects for their, their infrastructure needs. So like Alpine Linux or NixOS or Flatcar, like, Coding is one aspect of it, but you do need to build the artifacts for distribution for people to download it, and and people have to download it, and like that takes network resources. So, um, you know, for instance, Alpine Linux does all of their testing on our platforms. They spin up servers to run all the tests, to run all the build, and we actually use this for like CDN as well. So we kind of told the stories of some of those, how we started out small when we were a startup, and as we've grown and gotten acquired, we're able to dedicate more and more money showing like this is beneficial to the community, yes, but because we're provisioning bare metal systems that need to provision OSs on them all the time, like, turns out it's super useful to know people at all these companies that when you're struggling getting it working on your product, they also have interest in making sure it works on your platform. So it becomes a really nice symbiotic relationship where we're able to give what we have in Surplus, which is hardware and network resources, and we get back that kind of insight, insight into our own supply chain and like how we can help out deliver that product and how it works for us as well. So it's a pretty neat way yeah. to both give back and like make a good business case for it. So you can like <laughs> talk in numbers to the people that only speak right, in yes, numbers about how this is useful. Yeah, yeah. Money. Yes, it's just. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I did that one, and then I have another talk that I'm giving uh, just after this that will be. Uh, it is called the bits must flow, which is. 
my sort of back to basics networking talk that sort of starts with the, reminds everyone of the classic interview question, like what happens when you visit a website? Yes. And inevitably, especially magic. out of development, yeah, all magic, uh, pure magic, and then pictures come up and yes. you get cats. Um, but most people start with like, oh, well, it does DNS. I'm like, okay, so what happens Let's before that? Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happens before you can hit a DNS server? How does the computer know where those things are before it can resolve a domain name? Uh, so it's very much the like, here's layer two and layer three networking and what they're good for and like touches a little bit on some more advanced routing and talks a little bit about IPv6, which uh, it turns out has been around since the 90s when we were running oh, out yeah. of IP addresses yeah, remember 30 that, years ago. Yeah, those conversations, it will run out any minute. It, it has, yeah. <laughs> in fairness, like, which yeah. uh, is funny working for, you know, big internet company, like you find out, it's like, oh, actually all the IP addresses except for like a handful that are assigned to the African continent are leased to someone somewhere. And we're all, at this point, you're subletting IPs from whoever you're buying them from. They're, they're buying them from somebody. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, oh, God. Thinking about, like, uh, IP addresses in terms of, like, real estate value. I remember that this being, like, a, yeah, a right? big conversation <laughs> in, in my life 15 years ago or so. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, and it's, yeah. I mean, and there's so much left over, too, from the old class-based IPs when it was, like, would you, like, 255, 65,000, or 10 million? Take your pick. Like, right. and there's no... Like, right, yeah, I yeah. Just, I just wanted like 300. It's like, oh, sorry. It doesn't work that way. 65,000 it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah, so so I keep. I, I love to throw out the word magic. Not, not, not because there is actually any magic. I mean, maybe right. there is. I don't know. But but it, there's the, the saying, you know, any sufficiently advanced mm-hmm. technology is, is magic. Um, but, yeah, I, it, so, again, it, if you've been around a while... The way that we make software, make applications has become incredibly complicated. I'm sure people are tired of hearing me say this because I harp on it a lot, but it's true. It's very complicated now. People are highly specialized. And at some point, at some level, a developer working in their own little world um, is so far removed from the type of networking technology that you're talking about. Yeah. It is effectively magic. Like it, it... you know, you <laughs> I write some code. They have a team magic, supporting them. Get commit, that, you know. Magic happens. And exactly. It's in production. So, <laughs> you know, I think it is valuable to have people yeah. like you coming in and reminding people of really how does all this work. Yeah. So tell us, tell us, you know, pretend we know nothing. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I, I could do the, the like. No, I love it. I, I would love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a warm up. So I'll, I'm like, what's the best way to, to, to like wrap around it? And I think it might be like to start somewhere towards the middle of my talk. And then, like, give the examples of all of it. So, like, at a certain point, I give the example of, like, okay, here's two different routing examples. Like, you've got, say, one IP address, and you want to send it to another one that's, like, it's my example, let's say you're 10.10.10.1, and you want to send it, like, 10.10.10.100, and you're using a 24-bit CIDR, so it's, like, <laughs> it's so weird to go to without trying, like, how do I do this without drawing things and writing numbers down in the board? That's an excellent that's question. Pure audio way to talk about it. So like those IP addresses that everyone's comfortable for eventually break down into binary bits. Sure. And there is that slash 24 that you're used to seeing actually refers to just the first 24 bits of your subnet mask are a, are a one. And so what the system's doing at that point is saying, okay, everything that's a one, this portion of my IP address refers to my network. And everything that's a zero refers to hosts that are in that network. So if you're sending from, we'll say the networks are the same, the 10.10.10, uh, you're sending from dot one to dot one hundred. The first thing your system's doing is saying, "Oh, this is my network. That means I'm nearby. I don't have to like send it out anywhere. 
I should be able to talk to someone nearby. Uh, that's going to then do a broadcast out to your network and ask, hey, whoever's 10.100, what's your MAC address? And it will say back, here is my MAC address. And so it then takes, constructs the data frame, wraps that in you know, your packet that has IP addressing, wraps that with a, oh, well, that's the data frame. It takes your data, like your actual data payload, wraps that in an, uh, a packet and wraps that in a data frame and sends it along to the MAC address, uh, you know, assigns, this is my MAC address, this is where I'm sending it to, forwards that to your switch, the switch says, great, I know where that is, sends it to the correct host directly as opposed to a, a broadcast to everybody, and that host gets it, says, ooh, this is for me, and then does whatever it needs to do with the data that you've sent it. So that's like your local example, which is nice and easy. But then most of the time we're talking out to the internet, which is not a system next door. You can't just say, Hey, Google, what's your MAC address? Like, you can't just shout that because it won't get anywhere. We have, like, limits so that computers can't just broadcast to everyone on the whole internet. Like, that would be a problem. So what happens when you're routing is your computer says, oh, this is, it compares the network, says, oh, this network is not the same. So say you're, you know, again, 10.10.10.1, and you want to send to what's, like, Google's DNS, 8.8.8.8. Um, so for it, it looks at that network bit and says, oh, this is different than mine. So I can't figure out where that is on my own. I'm going to forward, this is where your, all your default gateways and, and all that come into play. It says, I'm going to forward this to my router and let that figure out where it needs to go. So it wraps the correct. It says, I'm, I'm sending to 8.8.8.8, but it uses the MAC address of your router instead. So your switch forwards it up to your router. The router unwraps it and says, oh, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else wraps it with the next step, maybe your, your ISP's default gateway, and it sends it up the line until eventually it gets to a, server, a router somewhere that says, oh, I know where this server is, wraps it, sends it directly along, and then the whole thing happens in reverse uh, when it communicates back. So yeah, it's all this like processing, and that's why we have all these layers and packets and, and things that get wrapped up, because it has to do different things at each of those steps. You know what I, f I feel like right now? You know those TV shows where the magicians use like plexiglass boxes so you can see what's happening behind the yeah. scenes. Yeah, and then it still like, looks like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's what we're doing right here. <laughs> like uncovering the magician's secrets. Yeah. <laughs> so you had another talk, and I, I, I wanted to yeah. also speak a little bit to that, because this one is near and dear to my heart, because it is it is truly about getting involved in open source and mm -hmm. open source communities. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um, dove into our open source partner program and how we got started with it and, and all this thing. So um, the corner that we're coming from, the, the Equinix Metal, uh, was originally a startup called Packet a few years ago. They got per bought out by Equinix about three years ago, and then we've, we've since merged in. Uh, and what Packet was doing was we want to provision bare metal the same way people are provisioning virtual machines in the cloud. Um, so we're putting racking and stacking servers, we're doing all that work, and then we're automating all of the, the back end of that. And so part of that is like when you spin up a server, like you want an operating system on it, prob probably. Probably. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so that's part of what we're doing. We offer like you want Ubuntu or NixOS or Rocky or Red Hat maybe. Um, so as we're working with all of these companies anyway to try and like get their products working on our service, uh, we find this opportunity of like we end up, if you're leasing out, you know, uh, if you're leasing out servers, you have to have a bunch of them lying around waiting right. to be leased out. So it becomes a really useful surplus that we have of, hey, we've got some of these that we can kind of lend out to these other companies 
that need the resources to build their products and need the resources to operate the infrastructure for the open source project, we can help out in that way. Um, so we've actually dive into where we're at. It started out very small. I think it was something like 25,000 a year worth of services. And we've eventually grown now to where we're at like $2 million a year worth of equipment and network services that we actually donate back to the open source community. Um, we've got a formal program through CNCF for any CNCF projects that want need that type of assistance. There's, a, there's an issue, you can file an issue <laughs> in the tracker and it eventually comes to us and gets evaluated and determines like, yep, this is a good match for what we can offer. And uh, now we've got uh, something like 100 different projects that use Equinix hardware in some way. Um, like kernel.org even, hosting all of that. We're hosting a bunch of their bits. And yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, so you talked about um, this idea of obstacles to contribution, right? There, yeah. there are lots of different incentives. There are lots of different reasons why people might contribute, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, again, some organizations are more yeah, interested yeah, yeah. in supporting contributions from their people. Mm -hmm. You know, again, it depends on where you are in the ecosystem. So, you know, how, how much incentive do you have to support that? And I wondered, you know, what kind of wisdom you could share? Yeah, it's, uh, it is actually, we've, we've found ourselves kind of in this situation as we got acquired even. The larger organization of Equinix, like their view on open source and their like open source initiatives were very much like, how can we be careful not to let too much open source into the organization, right? Like, oh. the, but we, you know, very much that like afraid of the licensing, like don't want to yeah. end up we've giving, heard, yeah, we've we don't want to give away too much sure. of our stuff. And I'm like, no one else cares. It's fine. Um, <laughs> But, uh, so coming into that was, was kind of a challenge because it meant that it was harder for us to contribute back to a particular project that was useful for us. So like contributing upstream didn't really make too much sense for us to do. Um, and it was difficult to get approvals to work on those projects during working hours. So taking this other angle of it and saying like, well, what else do open source projects need? I mean, I think there's always the classic example of like documentation. Like if you've got mm -hmm. time to do writing and you don't have to do code contributions, like help them out with documentation or, or localization or this. And I think what often gets overlooked is <laughs> how often does over infrastructure get overlooked? Like all the time, because we never <laughs> notice it until it's acting up. But yeah, it's magic. Especially we just these massive projects need a massive <laughs> amount of support. Like sure. you, you can't just download them from nowhere. They've got to yeah. be somewhere, right? As, as far as build and distribution. Um, we've worked heavily with like the Kubernetes project as well. I actually had a like... It didn't quite work out what we were trying to do, but we had a big project for a while trying to help out figuring, like, how can we ease some egress costs? Because this is one of the most downloaded projects on the internet. It costs them a lot of money Absolutely. to host and distribute the bits to other people, and they're pulling them down all the time, you know, hundreds of terabytes of data a month. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if that is, you know, the greatest open source success story since Linux, I guess. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah, I, something also you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm, I keep glancing at the description <laughs> of your talk, but that uh, there there is a value. People want to work with, with companies who contributed open source. Yes. There is yep. an incentive just, just in, in, in supporting those values, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder how, how that translates, you think, to, you know, selling, selling internally, selling the contribution internally. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the, the main gist of it. We have a, a point in the talk where it's if your organization has some sort of open source awareness, maybe there is an open source uh, program office like an OSPO, or they've had that legal concern, right? Like understanding what their fears of the thing are can like mm -hmm. help you kind of find a good angle to alleviate that too. 
And I, I think that's to your, to your point of like, how does associating with it help you sell it internally? Well, for us, it was part of our supply chain and part of our product. And mm -hmm. so we can say, hey, we're helping the people that also provide a thing right, that without right. them, we also fail. So like, this is a, a, a symbiotic connection here. Right. We give them a little bit, they make sure it's successful for us. And we both, now we have vested interest in like yeah. both and, these projects the being successful. The more you, you participate, the more awareness you have. Just you know, at a yeah, basic yeah, level, yeah. right? You yep. you need to know what. Oh yeah, what exactly. Like the if they're making a change, on. yeah, you need you to know that out. stuff. And and furthermore, if we pull in some esoteric hardware, which which happens because we have you know some, there aren't too many people that have like fully network optimized uh, extra you know network cards they're putting in, or like not too many people on a daily basis are installing particular Linux operating systems on like heavily GPU optimized uh, yeah. instances. So because we've got all these weird hardware configs for various workloads, we end up being like both a really good testing ground for them figuring out if like they can install and work on there. And then we get the access to them when we go, hey, this isn't working. We're running into this weird driver issue. And they go, oh yeah, though that is a kernel problem that we introduced here. Like, let's go fix it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you get that close relationship with people that you depend on for your success and then yeah. it, it works out really well. I've had several really great conversations lately about the concept of taking ownership mm. in open source, mm. right? There is a little bit of a perception by some who <laughs> that, you know, oh, this is free. I'll just take it all in and use it and use it, you know, consume sure. and consume yeah, and yeah. consume. But really, as people like to say, it's free as in puppy. And you yeah, hear yeah. that a lot. Some do not quite fully appreciate the ownership role you have when you are consuming open source software mm. and taking it into your projects and relying on it for business yeah, critical yeah, things. Yeah. You Absolutely. have to be involved. You have to, it, it, to an extent, become a curator. Mm -hmm. there, there are things that are, are necessary in that, in that arrangement. And, and I wonder um, if that also plays a, a part into that kind of internal awareness. Yeah, for sure. I think the, like there's, the classic XKCD comic of like oh, yep. the precariously the in, stacked in bricks. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Project maintained part time by a guy in Nebraska, yep. which is just the most true thing. Like, yeah, you got to help that guy out. <laughs> I've seen it like rewritten for like, it's like all of cloud native and it points, it's like Etsy for this one project. I'm like, yeah, no, that's you've just put specifics to the abstraction of this comic. Like, yeah, it's yeah. the exact same thing. Uh, and, and like, this is part of that helping us eliminate that problem. Like, we know we have these dependencies. And if you're building something and your entire like operation depends on a project maintained part-time by a guy in Nebraska, maybe reach out to the guy who's maintaining this project part-time in Nebraska and see if you can contribute back so it's not, it becomes not a liability, but now you've got this relationship that can actually help this become a useful project. And I've seen it with maybe more directly with actual open source companies. Like it's kind of how Elastic grew too. Like there was Elasticsearch and like, someone wrote this log stash program that happened to be using with Elasticsearch. And then like, oh, hey, that became a full partnership and merger, right? Like, and bringing these projects under their wing and saying like, oh yeah, we're become dependent on this. This is largely part of our success. Let's, let's actually work together on this rather than... Ideally. <laughs> living in your own spaces, right? And, yeah. and like hoping that it stays maintained. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the liability plays out in like... Um, like the best examples I can think of are, do you remember like the left pad incident that happened a few years ago? There was this NPM uh, project called left pad. It does what that it said. It just familiar. padded text on the, on the left. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, but it turned out to be a dependency for like an incredible oh, yeah, number everything. of and other. Then, and people aren't even aware of it. And they weren't even aware of it because it would yeah. be a sub-dependency so, of yeah, a sub-dependency like of something else. Somewhere, yeah. And this maintainer just decided like, I don't want to do this anymore and pulled their project off of uh, NPM and like brought down 
huge swaths of the internet yeah. as this project disappeared. Suddenly people couldn't build their website anymore. Yeah. Um, that's half the battle. Knowing what you have is half the battle. I mean, we could yeah. digress into a conversation about S-bombs or something, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's, yeah. N- taking ownership, that's part of taking ownership of, of what you are using and what you're doing is being aware. You know, and, and, and frankly, and I, I admit to have having to have had that sort of limited awareness in the past too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm maintaining a piece of software and I'm like, I'm running some metrics. I'm like, what, what do you mean I depend on <laughs> X, you know, XYZ package? What in the hell? <laughs> like, what Which is probably some side effect of like every proof of concept makes its way into production. But like, yeah. <laughs> you're like, I just did this as a side thing. It didn't matter what my dependencies are and suddenly yeah. it's load bearing and I don't know what's happening. <laughs> exactly. And this stuff is important. Um, I wanted to, since we're actually surprisingly running out of time, um, oh. I wanted to well, make sure you get to your talk. Oh, thank you. I appreciate but also, it. I just I want to know a little bit more about who you are. What, yeah. What's exciting to you right now <laughs> in open source? Yeah, I um, I have had like uh, open source generally always I, I find exciting because of the communities that pop up around it and the way it like relies on humans to like yeah. interact and make happen in that cooperation. And uh, the kind of like deep niche corner of ops that I've dove into is uh, resilience engineering and learning from incidents, which is it's a very people oriented like technical discipline. Um, and so, like specifically in open source, that's what I find like how organizations move and how they are shaped and how they react to things is like what I find super interesting about it. So. Um, like, I don't know what's a good, like, no, <laughs> like I, where do I dive into, which, which rabbit hole do I dive down? <laughs> no, hey, that's, that's always yeah. a question. <laughs> Every day I wonder that, to be honest. But, yeah, no, I like what, I like what you said. Uh, open source communities are, are, are a great place to find your people, find your, your, yeah. little, your, your yeah, group, yeah. find your niche. And, and, you know, there's so many people who are so sincerely interested in contributing and making technology better. And making yeah. the world a better place as a result. That I think, mm-hmm. I think there there's a place for everybody. If there's there's a takeaway from that, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think the there's a, a lean in to understand these as all of these systems and projects and everything have an interconnectedness. Like there is this consistent interconnectedness throughout all of the open source, free yeah. software community, for all of tech. Right. Like it all depends on humans at the end of the day. Like that's right. who's involved in it, and that's sort of the gist of the resilience community and resilience engineering is like ultimately what we're trying to do is bring the resilience in our systems, which is the people. They're the ones who are actually good at adapting and changing and keeping the lights on when like surprises and incidents occur, mm-hmm. bring their resources to bear more effectively. And so like any of these efforts that are starting to figure out like how can we actually drive more value to the people doing the interesting hands-on work? How can we give them more autonomy to do things that they know are correct because they work with it day in and day out? Right. Uh, as opposed to, you know, more command and control type structures and just, I don't know, all of the different ways this interconnects with what's going on in the worlds yeah. and the labor markets and everything else. I'm, I'm very much an everything yeah. is connected kind of... Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, I had a great conversation with somebody about how there are so many parallels in the open source community to, like, um, like, bio, like, Ecosystems, right? Yeah, being an environmentalist, yeah, yeah. being environmentally aware, keeping yeah. our pe- keeping our ecosystems clean. It's the same. It's the same with software. You, you kind of have it's to be an open funny. source environmentalist. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's it's funny that you make that connection. So I have a talk that I gave at a different conference uh, called "Changes in Our Bones," and, and part of it dives into uh, talks about lichens. <laughs> it makes and, sense to me. Uh, yeah, well, because if for, for folks that don't know what a lichen is, it is not an individual organism or 
is asterisk. Um, as we thought of it as these kind of plant-like mossy things, it turns out it's actually a symbiotic relationship between a fungus and algae or cytobacteria, and actually recently found out that most of them contain yeast as well, and like all three of these arguably different individual species cannot be meaningfully separated in lichen. Lichen is this also arbitrarily drawn border of a symbiotic relationship that like exists wholly in there that crosses like even kingdom borders of our normal taxonomy. And so there's a, a paper out there called Queer Theory for Lichens and dives into how this is not, this doesn't just play out in a vacuum here, this is found throughout like n nature and our environments, like even people, we think of ourselves as these individuals that are this sort of border, uh, which leads to lots of knock-on societal effects. But like even just the example of like, we have a microbiome inside of us and we don't exist. We can't digest yeah. food. We better take we care of it. We cannot create energy, <laughs> like without the symbiotic relationships with entirely different species that exist in our lives. Yeah. And like, that is true, not just of this microbiome, but of the relationships we have with each other, the social structures that we build. And like keeping this in mind starts to shift how we conceptualize stuff, like dives into the, the medicalization of disability, right? Like it's not a problem yeah. that you have being disabled, it's because we have not accounted for you needing to use this resource, right? And so yeah. oh, I all love of where this you're plays out this. and yeah, I can that's a whole other forty five. Yeah, minute I, again, talk I don't want to be late for your talk. <laughs> but I, I, I really I, yeah. I appreciate this is the kind of stuff that really fires me up, right? I yeah, I enjoy yeah, yeah. I enjoy Getting inspiration from other disciplines, yeah, you know, yeah. from That's really one of my favorites. diving into other areas that can help inspire us in our own, and mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy that. So I really appreciate, I really appreciate. I've had a really great time with this. And yeah, thank you so much. Too. Thanks for having me. Until next time. Until next time. You've been listening to Open at Intel. Be sure to check out more from the Open at Intel podcast at open.intel.com/podcast and at Open at Intel on Twitter. We hope you join us again next time to geek out about open source.